separated by miles and uh, time. And I want to briefly say, if you're watching this later in this week and you've just jumped to the sermon, I would like you to go back and hear what Ben has said. This is the beginning of our restoration offering, and uh, it's an important season for us, and I don't want you to miss that important note. We've been in this series we call Unraveled, and we're going through the book of Matthew as, as we study uh, the, the advent, the coming of Jesus as a baby into this world. And so I want us, I want us to remember a couple of things because it's going to frame how we understand the story that we heard today of the wise men. Remember that Matthew is writing to a Christian community that has just been expelled from their synagogue. 
So probably more, more, most likely, this is a, a group of Jewish believers that have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's radically changed their life and kind of the trajectory of what they're doing in this world. And because of that choice, they're being rejected by their church community, their synagogue. And so they're suffering the loss, not only of, of kind of the religious norms and those, those pegs that orient our world, but also family and friends have rejected them. And so Matthew wants to begin by pointing out that who exactly Jesus is. Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David and the son of the exile. That Jesus is the successor to Moses. That when you look at Jesus, what you see is not some sort of rejection of the Jewish story, but the fulfillment of what God began in the beginning with Abraham. But what we're going to see is that Jesus isn't just for the Israel, for Israel. Jesus is for the world. In fact, God will use other ways to communicate the birth of his son, ways that a Jewish person would never imagine. And it's in the story that we encounter the Magi. And this isn't the only time that we're going to experience Magi in the Bible. This, this isn't unique. Uh, it's also used in Acts, that word, when, when Peter defeats Simon the sorcerer. He could also be called Simon the Magi. Most likely, Magi are astrologers, not astronomers, Although, in the ancient Near East, those two ideas are fused uh, very tightly, so much so that even in the first century, that's kind of the same thing. What we do know is that Magi were wise, respected, smart people. They were most likely the advisors to a king in the king's court. In fact, if you remember the story of Daniel, when Daniel is taken into captivity to serve in Babylon uh, under uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is called a magi, and they see a star. It could have been a comet, like Halley's Comet. It could be a convergence of planets. We know because all of the celestial, everything just moves in an ordered fashion. We know that there was a convergence of, of Jupiter and Saturn and a star in the year 2 B.C., that would have made a very bright point in the heavens. In fact, this year on the winter solstice, December 21st, there's going to be another convergence of Jupiter and Saturn. Now, that happens like every 60 years or so, so it's not a huge phenomenon, but it is unusual in how close those two planets are and the fact that it's happening on the darkest day of the year. It could be any of those things. It could have been a, a supernova that suddenly burst into the heavens. We don't, we don't know. And that's really not the point that Matthew wants us to see. What Matthew wants us to know is that new stars herald new kings. And that what's happening in Bethlehem, in this tiny little town in the offskirts in the middle of nowhere, doesn't just have political significance or earthly significance. It has cosmic significance. And so the wise men, the magi, do what anyone would do. They, they visit Herod, who's, who's the king of Israel at the time. And, and Herod consults the Jewish scholars, and the scholars tell him, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, and that's based on Micah chapter 5. It was said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. 
And that's because Herod wouldn't uh, violate, he wouldn't eat pork, he wouldn't violate the law, but he did kill two of his sons out of paranoid fear when they were trying to usurp the throne. Throne, that was hard. And so when the Magi go to Herod, they may or may not know what they're doing. They're just looking to give gifts to a king that they saw in the heavens. What they've actually done is set a terrible set of actions in order. I read a quote once that said that once a person becomes president, they're no longer to have, able to have any more friends. They can't make any more new friends from that point forward. It's because everyone that has access to the president at that point, the reason that they have it is because they want something from them. And so if you become president, make sure you have all of the friends you need because you may not get any more real friends for the rest of your life. It's just the way it is when you're a person in power. Herod is afraid because of the position that he put himself in. And I want you to remember that in the grand scheme of things, not only is Bethlehem just this little village out in the sticks, Israel itself has very little political significance compared to the superpowers that happened in the ancient Near East and Rome in the first century. It has some strategic value in its position between Europe and uh, East, uh, West Asia and, and Africa. There's some value there, but it has very little significance other than that. It's just kind of this backwater region. And especially when you consider how much of a frustration it is to govern the Israelites. Because they just tend to throw rebellions. And so he made a promise to the empire. He made a promise to Rome that said, if you put me in power here, I'll keep this quiet. I'll keep this safe. And as long as Rome got a steady uh, stream of tax revenue, and as long as there's no trouble, there'll be no trouble. Herod will get to rule his little kingdom in peace. And so Herod has to work this delicate dance to stay in power from those above him and those below him. It's as if he made a deal and now he's stuck in it. It's not just true for Herod, it's true for the world. The kingdom that is coming around us is a threat to the entrenched powers of the world. And they're going to resist this inbreaking, just like Herod. Herod is going to try to kill this infant before he becomes a threat. Eventually, Pilate and the leaders of Jerusalem will succeed where he fails. Even if the expression of God's kingdom is something as innocent and charitable as a baby, born to two poor parents that can't even afford the normal sacrifice when they brought him to the temple, People that want to remain in power will be insatiable to conquer every threat. Kings and leaders whose primary appetite is hunger and thirst for power and prestige will react with insecurity and will lash out in destructive and spiteful ways. When power is the only means by which you can identify your value and your worth, anything that threatens that false narrative must be dealt with in the most ruthless and spiteful ways. And maybe, just maybe, there's a little Herod in us. Maybe there's just a, a little bit of us that's afraid of losing our piece of the pie, no matter how big it is or small it is. 
There's this apocryphal story that happens all the time in, in California. It's a, it's a story of, of disaster. You may not know this, but Yahoo was one of the early tech startup companies, and uh, it quickly gained a big market share. It was the, the biggest corporation on the block in terms of search. But they refused to buy for $1 million a little startup that Larry Page and Sergey had, had, had created, and they wanted to sell it so they could finish school. They were going to Stanford at the time. They just kind of wanted, they made something cool. They wanted to sell it and make a little bit of money, but Yahoo refused because $1 million was too much. Four years later, Yahoo realized their mistake and tried to buy that smart little, small little startup, Google, for $3 billion four years later. And Google wants $5 billion. So Yahoo refuses. By the way, now Google is worth more than half a trillion dollars. Six years later, Yahoo refuses to be sold to Microsoft for $40 billion because they were worth more. They were the beginners. They were the ones that started this whole thing. And then just a few years later, sold to Verizon for $4.6 billion. It's kind of the story about what happens when leaders confuse their worth and the value of products. Because maybe there is a little Herod in us. You know, it's when somebody else writes a better article or had a noteworthy insight that challenges your own sense of your ability. It's when a sibling wins an award or makes the team and all of a sudden is your value is threatened in your family. Or a spouse that finds meaning or interest in something outside of the routine that you guys do together and all of a sudden the apple cart gets tipped over. And all these little ways that we're trying to keep a hold of that little bit of power. The other thing I think we take away from this, this text is that even a small light is terrifying to the dark. Even a small light is terrifying to the dark. There's another story that uh, is kind of apocryphal in Silicon Valley. It's about a, a small startup. His name was uh, Kadabra. And it was built like a thousand other startups in somebody's garage on the West Coast. It's, a, it's another person, young person who had a big idea and had some seed money from mom and dad to kind of get them started. And the major industry that Kadabra was focused on saw the website that was being built and they didn't think it would matter. They didn't think it would make any difference at all. And so when Kadabra was offered to be sold, they balked and refused. They didn't really care for it. Kadabra was, uh, was confused by a lawyer that was filing a patent with the name Cadaver. And so the CEO at the time thought, that's not a very good name because I don't want it confused with Cadaver. And so they changed the name to Amazon. And the retail book industry that scoffed has now been playing catch up for 25 years and just about every other retail industry as well. There is a little Herod in all of us, but there's also a little Magi too. 
There's a part of us that wants to to see, that longs to witness the holy moments on the holy ground. And there's a, a part of us that wants to be a part of the unraveling of the evil structures in this world. Because if we know anything from this text, that we know that even a small light is terrifying to the dark. It's the story of Rosa Parks on December 1st in 1955. She sat in a bus seat and refused to move when the driver demanded that she give up her seat for a white person. It was just one person refusing to move against the powers and the system of racial inequity. What difference could she make? Ms. Parks was fired from her job. She and her family received death threats. Eventually, she had to move from Alabama to Detroit just to survive. Because even a small light is terrifying to the dark. But small lights have power. Because of Rosa Parks' courage, she also inspired the people of Montgomery to boycott the bus system for years. Because small lights can make a big difference in the dark. And I wonder what that looks like in big and small ways, because you in your mind right now be thinking, I, you know, I can't do much. There's not a lot I can do to affect the powers and the systems of inequity and judgment in this world. There's not a lot I can do, but you'd be surprised. I heard this story this week about, it was a Dairy Queen in the small town of Brainerd, Minnesota. And what happened at this Dairy Queen is truly remarkable. Maybe you heard this story this week. Uh, a man pulled up to the drive-thru, paid for his meal, and said, you know what, I want to pay it forward today. And so he paid for the meal of the person behind him, and then that person pulled up, and they paid for the person behind them. And then that person pulled up and paid for the person behind them. And then somewhere on the line, down the line was so inspired by what happened, they just handed $80 to the person and said, let's see how far it goes. Car after car after car. And at the end of the, the shift, when they closed that night, they had $10 left over from people that had just paid forward, that had decided to give joy to the car behind them. They didn't know who they were or what they were doing, but they just decided someone else has done this for me and I'm going to do it for somebody else. So they had $10 at the end of the night and they decided the next day we're going to start the drive through with that $10 and tell that person, hey, someone last night paid this meal for you. 900 cars went through that drive through over the course of two days paying a meal forward. Who knows what a small light can do to change a community or a city or a world? And as I thought about that story and I reflected on the power of what happened, it made me wonder, like, who was that 900th car? And what was going in their head? What was going on in their head when they just kind of decided, nope, I'm good. I am the recipient of, of 900 cars of, of generosity, but I'm good. And, and my first instinct was to say, well, obviously that person was self-interested and selfish and just wanted to take the gift and ran. But then I thought maybe not. Maybe that 900th car really didn't have enough money to spare that day. And the light that began 900 people before that was God's gift to them. What we take away from this text is that the powers of evil and darkness 
are terrified of even a small light. And Matthew will say in chapter 5, so let your light shine. Let your light shine so that everyone can see it. This week we had an event to kind of kick off our holiday season uh, we called it Light Up Highland, and if you haven't driven by the building at night sometime this week, I'd love for you to do it, because you'll, you'll see a row of lights that runs along the edges of the building, and it's, it's a new thing that Highland's doing this year. It's really intended to be a, a gift to our, our community, just to give them some joy and some cheer, to see that we care about what's going on, and it's not a big light, but it's, it's our part. And as part of that uh, event, what we decided to do was to, to have these balloons, helium balloons, they had this little light inside of them, and we tied to those balloons a $5 gift card, and, and we gave them to everyone that was there and said, hey, take this and give it to somebody that you think needs a little bit of hope this year. Take this to somebody that you think needs a little bit of joy this year. And if you don't have somebody that immediately springs to mind, then we just want you to take it to one of the houses in our neighborhood and just drop it off. Just provide a little bit of cheer. And five dollars to, to get a coffee or to get, get a sandwich isn't very much money. But we rely, we lean into the promise that God can do big things when God's people choose to open their hearts and their hands to give. The first iteration was not as well thought because originally what, what I wanted to do was have those paper lanterns. I don't know if you know those paper lanterns. You light a candle and it lifts off and then it goes up. And then we heard the story about a time when somebody tried that and they set fire to a field. And we thought ourselves, you know, if, if we did set off a bunch of these paper lanterns and we set fire to the entire neighborhood, that is spreading light, but it's just not the kind of light that we wanted to spread. And I'm really pleased with the way that it turned out. And so what I want you to hear today is that your light, no matter how small, it can change the world. But it's also going to be threat to those that are in power. 33 odd years later, Pilate and the Sanhedrin, the political power and the religious institution will gather again for Jesus' death. There is joy in what God is doing in this little town of Bethlehem. And there is joy in what God does in our hearts. So let that little light shine this year, especially this year. I want to remind you of, of one thing that's coming up uh, that's a little bit different because of just the season that we're in. Uh, normally, our church holds a Christmas Eve service. It is one of my favorite things in the entire year when, when everyone holds their candle up as we sing Silent Night. Well, we can't gather in that way this year. So what we're doing is a, li a little bit different. We're going to do Christmas Eve with Highland instead of at Highland. And so the entire day of Christmas Eve, you're going to be able to stream a service that, that we're preparing. Uh, you're going to hear a good word. You're going to hear good music. But we also want you to participate. We have these... Uh, bags that we are going to give out to you. If you're coming to the park today, you can pick one up, or you can see in an email that should have been sent to you about how you can pick one up uh, over the next few days here at the office. And, and this is a little kit that has some bells and uh, candles and a candy cane. It's, 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 a, it's a kit for you to take home so you can participate when you watch. It's just a way for us to engage with one another 
and spread the light and cheer of this holiday. And so we're excited for you uh, to join us on Christmas Eve. No matter where you are, no matter what time you can do it, no matter who you're with, you can turn on the TV and, and worship and celebrate Jesus coming into this world. Because when Jesus came to this world, he changed everything. And the promise we hold in our hearts is that when Jesus comes again, he will change us again. So may you be filled with God's spirit this week. May you find little ways to let light shine. And may in your own way have the courage to take on the powers and the principalities of evil in this world. May you be filled with God's spirit and go in peace.